2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Every day, we apply pressure to objects to get out from the inside what's there. We do this with ketchup bottles. We do this with water bottles. We do this with, some of us anyway, with shampoo. Uh, We do it with toothpaste. And what do we do? We take the object and we apply external pressure to it. And what happens? Well, we change the shape of it. And so it produces pressure inside the container, and what happens? Out comes whatever it might be, the mustard, the ketchup, the hot sauce, or whatever it is. It comes out when pressure is applied to it. But what works for toothpaste also works for human beings, and I'm not talking about our physical bodies when they're put under pressure, things tend to come out. Not that, but I mean more metaphorically. We talk about that, don't we? We say, well, I'm really under what? I'm really under pressure. And what do we mean? We mean the circumstances of life are, are, are pressing in on us. And we use a physical image that we feel compressed. And what happens when that kind of pressure, the pressure of circumstances, the pressure of life is applied to humans, what comes out? Well, what comes out is what's inside. What comes out is what's inside. That's where we show our real colors. I had a professor who used to talk about uh, saying, he said that, Christian character is not seen so much in our actions, but in our reactions. When pressure is applied to us, when the circumstances are outside of our control. And what we have in the Thessalonian letters is we have some very new Christians who were under tremendous pressure from outside, and now we find out that they also had pressures that were growing inside the church. And the These two letters together demonstrate that when pressure was applied to these relatively new Christians, what came out was excellent. 
excellent. Now, the greeting here in verses 1 and 2 is very similar to the greeting in 1 Thessalonians with a couple of modifications, so I refer you back to that sermon. Uh, This is a typical greeting of Paul. Included here are two other missionaries, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy, who were the missionaries who evangelized the city of Thessalonica in the first place. There, is a, uh, there are a couple of little, little changes here to this greeting. It's a little bit longer. And instead of saying to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, it's more personal. Here they're saying, in God our Father. There's an emphasis on that. He's not just the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he is our Father as well. And we also have the repetition of the phrase, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have two pairs here. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ are paired together as the joint sources or the joint source of grace and peace. And grace and peace are also put together here. Grace is the the cause, and peace or shalom is the result. So God's favor ends in God's well-being. Grace ends in peace. And from where does it come? From whom does it come? It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, put on the same level. Once again, we see the, the naturalness with which the entire New Testament places Jesus Christ on the same level with God our Father. Now, a recap of 1 Thessalonians. It's been, uh, it's been the summer, and certainly when teachers get their students back in the fall, what do they do? They do some review to try to remind them of what they saw last year, and that we'll do the same. So Paul, Timothy, and Silas, Silvanus, had spent a very short time in Thessalonica. They had been driven out of Philippi, so they went to Thessalonica, and they were able to spend some weeks or maybe months there, and they formed a new church until they were driven out of Thessalonica also. And then they went on to Berea, and guess what happened in Berea? Yes, they were driven out of Berea as well. But it's interesting that those churches that are called the Macedonian churches in northern Greece, uh, those churches became some of the churches that were the biggest supporters of Paul's ministry in his, uh, the later years. And so we have uh, them founding this church. And then if you recall in 1 Thessalonians, the, the missionaries were concerned about the faith of these new Christians. They'd founded the church, the missionaries were driven out, and then they were saying, oh no, what has happened with these new believers that are being persecuted? They're, they're new in the faith and they're being persecuted. And so if you go back to 1 Thessalonians 3, We find that in verse 1, it says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. So they sent Timothy back in to to kind of reconnoiter and to find out what was going on and to see how their faith was. And then Timothy came back, and we find his report in chapter 3, Verses uh, 6 to 8 of 1 Thessalonians. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Timothy goes. He comes back and says, Paul, Silas, don't worry. 
They're doing great. Their faith is thriving. Their love is thriving as well. And then in uh, the rest of the letter in, in Thess- 1 Thessalonians, the authors clarified some details about the coming of the Lord Jesus because it, they, they had some, some misconceptions or just some holes in their understanding. And so Paul uh, filled them in on the day of the Lord, on the coming of the Lord Jesus. And that theme will come up again in 2 Thessalonians, more misunderstandings. So what do we have in the second letter? That's the first letter. The second letter indicates that the circumstances hadn't gotten any better in Thessalonica. It wasn't easier for the Christians. The persecution and the afflictions had not calmed down yet. And at the same time, at the same time, the faith and the love of the believers was not only surviving, but it was thriving. It was growing abundantly. And um, each chapter of 2 Thessalonians, and that's how we'll look at it chapter by chapter, addresses a threat to the church's well-being. And there are three of them. One of them is external, and two of them are internal. The first threat that we will see today is the common one, the, the one we know about from 1 Thessalonians, persecution from the outside. Chapter 2, the second threat, false teachers from within, and particularly about the coming of the Lord. And then the third threat are lazy, idle church members who were refusing to work. So we have the persecutors, we have the false teachers, and we have the idlers. But if you want the the big idea, not only of today, but of of 1 Thessalonians and Thessalonians together, it's this. Our faith and our love may and must thrive no matter what our circumstances are. That's the big idea, and that keeps coming out in these letters clear, uh, very clearly. After the greeting, we have, as is typical of Paul's letters, almost all of them, we have a thanksgiving section. And that's in verses 3 and 4. And it's interesting how they put it here. They don't just say, we give thanks to God for you. They say, we are obligated to give thanks to God for you. It is right. It is fitting. This is unusual language. We ought, we are obligated always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. So there is a, 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 an obligation laid upon the authors here. We must, we have to give thanks for you. Now, the reason is not because it was an onerous duty. And they said, oh, we have to give thanks to God for you. This is a duty placed upon us. Okay, thank you. It's not like that. On the contrary, it is, it is so obvious that the work of God in you is God's work, that there is nothing else to do except to give thanks to him. That is the the obligation placed upon us because your circumstances are so bad and your faith is thriving and your love is thriving. Notice how he describes their faith. It says in verse 3, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Who produced that? The answer is God produced that. That's the only explanation. And so they said, there's nothing else we can do. We are, we are in a corner. There is no other response that we could possibly have to such abundant faith and growing love than to give thanks to God because it's his work so obviously. And then not only that, in verse 4 they said, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. 
for your steadfastness and faith. And we actually have evidence of that in, in the Corinthian correspondence. We have him boasting about the Macedonian churches. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and all the afflictions that you are enduring. He went around and, and gossiped well about them, boasted about them wherever he went. You should, you should see what's going on in Macedonia. You should see how they're thriving in spite of their sufferings. And we find out also their poverty. This is, this is really a, a great aspiration for us as a church, isn't it? What do we want people to say about Florida Coast Church? Uh, you know, some churches, they, they might say, oh, that the building's beautiful. They might say that uh, the music is amazing. They might say that the preaching is, is, is very powerful. And those are all great things to have. But, but even higher than those kind of successes would be these. Their faith is growing abundantly in spite of the difficulties that they face. And their love for one another, it's amazing. You ought to see those folks at Florida Coast Church love each other. Faith and love. No greater praise could, could churches receive than that. Now, we go on to the, the, the initial uh, or the, the first group of, of oppressors here or the first difficulty they were facing in verses 5 and so on, 5 and following, 5 to 10. We have the, the persecutors. And the persecutors are described here as those who are afflicting the believers there. They're described as those who, who don't want to know God. They're described as those who refuse the gospel. The gospel is being preached in their midst, but they're refusing, uh, uses the, the description, they refuse to obey the gospel by believing in it. And Paul says, in light of all this, you need to know something. And you need to know that the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. And here he talks about the righteousness of God that will be revealed, and he draws a line in the sand. And it's interesting how this actually dovetails well, dovetails well with the, the parable series, because the parables tend to separate people into this category and that category. We saw how, how that came to a conclusion last week in the in the, uh, the judgment scene of the, the sheep and the goats. But here we see it again. And so here we see that Paul is saying that there, there's going to be a line, there's going to be a separation, and there's an appropriateness about what happens to both groups. Notice this. There's, a, there's a pr- an appropriateness. The, the results will fit the people very well, tragically in one case, gloriously in another. The persecutors, what about them? They will experience appropriate punishment. And look at, look at verse 6. It says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So these are masters of affliction. What will be their punishment? Affliction. You see the appropriateness of this. Those who caused destruction will be destroyed. Verse 9, it says, they will suffer the, the punishment of eternal destruction. Those who did not wish to know God will be far from God. They didn't want any, any part of God in this life, and so it's appropriate that they be separated from God in the next life. Why would they be placed with God in the next life if they wanted nothing to do with him in this life? I keep reading in verse 9. It says, away from the presence of the Lord. 
And then finally, those who did not glorify him in this life will be banished from his glory in the next. Verse 9 still, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And he's saying this is just. This is the just judgment of God. This is appropriate. This fits because of how they lived on this earth. And then in contrast, the persecuted Christians will experience appropriate gifts of God's favor. And they will fit as well. The gifts that they will receive in the future will fit the the, the way they live their lives in the present. Verse 5, those who have been rejected by the kingdoms of this world will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You're suffering now at the hands of the kingdoms of men for the kingdom of God, and so you will be counted worthy of that kingdom. Also, those who have been afflicted now will receive relief then. Verse 7, God considers it just, verse 6, God considers it just, on the one hand, what we already saw, to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and he considers it just to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. So it's appropriate, he says. To, to those who are afflicted now, to have relief. To those who afflict now, to have affliction. To those who are afflicted now, to have the relief from affliction in the future. And then, those who have glorified Christ now will experience the glorification of Christ later. Verse 10 says that when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints... By his saints, among his saints, through his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And that's the last thing. Those who believe in Christ now will marvel at him then. And so this is all appropriate. And he's saying this is fitting. This is appropriate for both the persecutors and for the believers. But I want you to notice something here. When will this happen? Verse 7. To grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Then in verse 10, when will this happen? It says that when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. When, when will this happen? When will things be put right finally and perfectly? And it says, when he comes. When he comes. Now, that on the one hand is, is hope. And that's what he's trying to infuse in these believers. Hope and perseverance uh, and faith. But on the other hand, it's sobering, isn't it? Because it says some of these things are going to keep happening. Some believers are going to experience these kind of things their entire lives. And it's not hard. You can get on the internet and you can go to Voice of the Martyrs, their website, and you can read how believers are being afflicted and persecuted around the world cruelly. And it it, it may be that in this life they receive some relief from that. Or maybe not. And then if you take a step back and think of the Church of Jesus Christ in general, there are times when, when the church of Jesus Christ gets, gets a relief, gets, gets a respite from, from opposition and from persecution and from overt affliction. But, but, but somewhere or another, 
This is always going to be happening, and it looks like that this is not ever going to go away completely until the Lord Jesus comes again. Now, we, we tend to be, it's, it's pretty remarkable when you look at the West and the United States and all that we've accomplished for good and for evil in the world. We're, we're can-do kind of people. We're fix-it kind of people. Just tell us the problem, and we will fix it. We will get our best minds working on it, and, and we will fix this problem. But here we see that there's a problem that can't be completely fixed until the Lord Jesus comes again. And so, on the one hand, that, that could, for us, say, well, uh, we're frustrated. We're, we're, this is not how it should be, and indeed it is not how it should be. But it's out of our hands to some degree. These are things that, that we can't control necessarily. Now, this delay of justice may make some Christians feel like helpless victims of circumstance. But that is not the posture of these letters, and that is not the posture of the New Testament at all. Um, and we see that in the final section here, which is a prayer. A prayer. Now, the concluding prayer is a, a plan for life. So there are things out there that you can't control. The Lord Jesus will take care of those. Don't worry about those things. He will take care of those things when he comes. But here's what you can do. And here's the prayer report of the believers, of, of the, the missionaries. And it says here, to this end, we always pray for you. And what do they pray? That our God may make you worthy of his calling. That make you worthy of his calling. Now, this is fascinating because the plan is that those who will be declared worthy of the kingdom of God when he comes again are to live in a manner now that is worthy of his calling. Do you see the fittingness of all this? So when he comes again, believers will be declared worthy of his, his kingdom. And so let's get on with it now. Let's get on with life in the kingdom. And, and how is that? Living in a way that is worthy of his calling. And then, how is that? Well, he describes it. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So two things, the resolve, the determination for good, where does that come from? Well, they're praying that that, that would be in the believers, praying for the resolve that we would will and work his good pleasure. So the, the will and the working, that's the prayer here. So the lifestyle, every good resolve, every good intention, every good purpose, and every good work caused by faith. And notice, though, that it says every work of faith by his power. By faith, by power. So it's, it's work that is produced by faith, but even go back behind that, where does that faith come from? Well, that faith comes from his power. So all of this comes back to him. So the result will be that glory that we've already mentioned, that glory that, that Christians will receive in that, in that final days. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. You see, we don't have to wait till that day for glory. It says, this is my prayer now, that your lives may be so in tune with the calling that you've received that the glory of Christ is seen in you now. So there's some things that have to wait till that day. 
But the glory of Christ does not have to wait till that day. It can now, even now, in this world, it can be manifest in those who have been called so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there it comes back. This is a, this is a full circle, isn't it? How does this text start? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How does it end? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Starts with grace, comes back to grace. It's all of grace. It's from grace to grace, beginning to end. What's grace? Well, I already said it's God's favor. It's his good pleasure toward his own. And, of course, the greatest expression of God's grace is mentioned here. It's that which is rejected by those who do not know God. It's in verse 8. It's called the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's good news. And if if you want to find grace, you need to, to go to this good news. And this good news is that God is favorable toward his people in Christ. And Christ gave himself. He lived and he died and he rose again and he reigns now for his people. And he offers salvation. He offers forgiveness of sins. He offers eternal life. He offers the identity as, uh, as children of God. He offers all this to those who will believe in him. So if, if you want to see grace, you need to look to Jesus. If you want to see God's grace and know God's grace, you need to review the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Now, th- this, this lesson, this kind of talking is pretty typical of, of the New Testament. But it, it sounds very foreign to us, doesn't it? Because we're living in a kind of an anomalous situation We're living in an unusual situation in terms of how Christians have lived throughout history and live today. We live with freedom. We live with plenty. We live free from persecution. We don't have people coming after us to try to to harm us physically. We're not being locked up. We're We're not being persecuted overtly for our faith. We, we can be here today and we can say whatever we want that comes from the scripture and nobody will, will lock us up because of that. This is, this is unusual and it's a great blessing for us to have. But what it does, our situation, it kind of cuts us off from much of the New Testament. It, 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 it makes it hard for us to understand these things and it makes it hard for us to apply them. Now certainly all Christians have afflictions. Some of those afflictions are simply afflictions of being in this fallen world. And some of those afflictions may may tend towards persecution. They are afflictions that we suffer because we are Christians, even if they are not overt persecution. They're just difficulties we, we find in this world by going against the flow when everything's going this way and we are resisting. And there are afflictions that come with that. But more often than not, I think, at this time in our history and in our part of the world, our faith is tested by the opposite, by the opposite, by, by ease and by plenty and by, by freedoms. And it's interesting, there's a, there's a prayer toward the end of the Proverbs that's a fascinating prayer. The words of, of Agur, he says this, two things I ask of you, It's in chapter 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, 
Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Then he explains why that prayer. Lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He doesn't want to go in either one of those directions. He doesn't want to have too much and say, I don't need the Lord. Look at the Old Testament history. How do they do when prosperity struck? Often not well. They would forget the Lord. And that's one side. And the other side is, is extreme affliction. And extreme affliction, he says, I don't want to be so poor that I, they have to steal to feed my family and so profane your name. You see, they're, they're, they're two opposite tests. They're two opposite kinds of pressures that, that Christians can experience. And some of us may have experienced or may in the future experience persecution. Certainly, we experience afflictions. But maybe more often than not, our our faith is tested by prosperity and freedom and ease. I was got to go to India one time, and I was struck by how difficult life seemed to me to be there. I got terribly sick, and it, to me it was a, a miserable experience, and I, I, I don't really want to go back there again. It's an amazing country. This is not to say anything negative, but my experience was so bad just because I got so sick there. And, and I, I looked at the Christians, and I saw how joyful they were, and I saw how little they had, and I saw how they were just surrounded by idolatry. And I thought, how difficult it must be to be a Christian here. And so I was sitting with a group. It was of children, and I said, where do you think? I think it was young people. I said, where do you think it's more difficult to be a Christian, in your country or in our country, whatever you know of our country? And immediately they said, oh, in the United States. It's much more difficult to be a Christian there. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, you have everything. They said, you have cars, you have houses, you have, you have everything. It must be very difficult. And I felt like they were sort of pitying us and feeling bad for us that our faith would be tested that way. But however that might be, we didn't, we didn't choose this. We give thanks for it. This is a great blessing not to be despised. Uh, all the, the material blessings of the Old Testament came from God, and, and they were given to, to his people. We, we give thanks for these. Uh, we didn't choose this. We also don't choose the afflictions, do we? When afflictions come to us, sometimes they're of our own doing, but oftentimes they're not. They're things that are outside of our control. We just can't do anything about them. Whatever those circumstances, we have a winning formula here. It's not a defeatist formula. It's a winning formula. It's the formula for victory now, glory now, and more glory later. And what is it? It's very simple. It goes like this. Grace, faith, love. Grace, faith, love. And if we could add a fourth one, the result, grace, faith, love, glory. Receive the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith produces love for one another, love for God, and love for one another. And in that is seen the glory of Christ now and will be revealed even more fully in that last day when he comes again to be glorified in us and we in him. So let's pray. Our God, we 
read about these Christians and read about the kind of pressures they were under. We can't really identify very well oftentimes with them. We thank you for their testimony, Lord. We, we need that testimony because one day we may be in that sort of a situation here in our country or if you take us somewhere else. And Lord, we pray that whatever the pressures that come upon us, that we would be able to have abounding faith and growing love so that the glory of Christ would be seen in us. Lord, if we are tested by afflictions, may our faith be firm and our love abounding. If we are tested by prosperity and ease, may our faith be firm and our love abound, that the glory of Christ may dwell in us and that it might be manifested now and in that last day. And we pray in his name. Amen.